0: It's Friday 24th of November and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder, coming up why another un climate conference isn't the answer to tackling global warming and the data tools you need to navigate the green transition but first i'm joined again by group chief economist neil shearing hi there neil hi there david so we're post thanksgiving the end is in sight on what i guess has been another extraordinary year in macro i thought we could take some time to look ahead to the key themes we think are going to dominate the global economy in in 2024 Let's start with growth, because the last time we spoke about this, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, you were talking about US outperforming Europe next year. But I mean, speaking more generally, our forecast for 2024 for for, for growth globally, they're a bit lower than the consensus, aren't they? Talk to me about why that is.
1: Yes, that's right. If you look across the major economies and regions, our forecasts for GDP next year are a bit below consensus. That's particularly the case actually in the Eurozone, where we're right towards the very bottom of the consensus range. Uh, Now, why is that? It's principally about the continued pass-through of tighter monetary policy to the real economy. The lengthening of maturity structures and the shift towards fixed rates has dampened the pass-through. I think goes a long way to explaining why economies have been more resilient than many, including ourselves, had anticipated this year. But it doesn't mean that the pass-through has disappeared altogether or that monetary policy is completely impotent. It just means that the the pain of the, the tightening is going to be spread over a longer period, I think. And in Europe, we don't have the the same, say, 30-year fixed rate mortgages that are genuine 30-year fixes that you have in the US. Yes, there's kind of two five-year fixes to mortgages, but as consumers and households roll off of those mortgages, the pain of higher rates will will be felt in in the household sector, and that will continue next year. So that's the principal reason why we anticipate that the, the growth is going to be a bit weaker than, than than many expect next year, and that the eurozone will underperform the US again. So another year of US exceptionalism, if you like.
0: And talk a bit about the the impact of monetary policy, how it's affecting inflation. How achievable do you think are 2% inflation targets
1: in 2024? I think the key thing to understand is that inflation cycles are still being driven heavily by pandemic-related supply distortions. And that's one reason why, as I've said on this podcast before, We've argued that the post-COVID inflation scare is more analogous to the inflation shock that followed the Second World War than it is to the inflation research of the 1970s. Um, So it's still the pandemic and and the the associated distortions on the supply side that are the principal drivers of inflation to our mind. And it follows that as pandemic-era distortions fade, then inflation will come down. That's what we've already seen. Uh, Across most advanced economies, particularly in the US, and I think we think that has a that process has further to go. We know that in the US, the shelter component of CPI has further to fall, and we know that if you look at the data, Europe and the UK is kind of lagging the disinflation process in the US by about six to nine months, and there's several reasons for that, including the effects of the energy shock. That followed the the war in Ukraine, but I think we can be reasonably confident that the great inflation surge is going to end, and 2024 will be the year where where it kind of draws to a close. Yeah, there's there's clearly lots of things that could go wrong, but when we look at core inflation, so underlying inflation pressures, I think we feel increasingly confident as we get towards the end of next year, the kind of two percent rate at which central banks are going to feel far more comfortable will be within sight across advanced economies.
0: And I know we've been talking about how monetary policy will be looking more and more restrictive as as inflation recedes. It's worth noting a a year ago this month was all about 75 basis point rate hikes from from the Fed and and others. Talk about the path for rates in 2024. What, what, What can we expect from
1: these banks? Yes, I think you've just hit upon the key point that as inflation comes down, then all other things being equal, the real stance of monetary policy will tighten. So, if we're right in thinking that inflation is going to be kind of coming down to, if not quite at the kind of two percent um, rate that central banks are comfortable with, but you know, we're we're getting close to to those kind of rates, then it follows that if you've got policy rates at five or five and a half percent, then the real policy rate is going to be somewhere maybe two and a half to maybe even three, which is extremely tight. So that means I think that central banks will be able to take their foot off of the the monetary break next year. So I suspect the interest rates are going to fall nearly everywhere. I think that's pretty uncontroversial. That's that's a view that's priced into the market. I think while we have a slightly different view is that the the extent to which we think the Fed in particular will lose some policy given the scale of the fallback in inflation is uh greater than markets are currently pricing in. So if we're right in thinking that, then I suspect there's there's more reasons to think that the bond yields have further to fall over the course of twenty twenty four. So that the the rebound in the bond market that we've seen over the past month or so. I think perhaps that's a bit, bit further to run.
0: One of the big themes for this past year has been uh, artificial intelligence, the promise of artificial intelligence, the, the AI hype. It certainly has been if you've been long US tech. Our spotlight report that we published back in September made this case for a big DM productivity boom from, from this technology. Is that something we're going to see the fruits of in 2024? Because I noticed the, the OBRs, UK's fiscal watchdog, just this past week has cut it's a productivity growth forecast for the UK. So w- where is the AI technology boom?
1: You are really striking that downgrade to UK long-term potential GDP growth, something that makes the fiscal challenges in the UK at least through the lens of the OBR's forecast, all the more challenging and frankly some of those forecasts difficult to believe on the fiscal side. As as it relates to AI, I think actually we're we're more optimistic as you say in our report spotlight report this year. We outlined our view that AI has the potential. We think to drive a significant increase in productivity growth. A key point, though, is that I think it's going to take several years for infrastructure and processes to adapt to this new technology. So that boost to, to growth is more likely to come at the back end of this decade and in the 2030s, rather than in 2024 or indeed in 2025. So it's a it's a kind of medium to long term growth boost, rather than something that's suddenly going to lead to a a surge in growth over the next 12 to 18 months. Now, all of that being said, I think 2024 will be a year in which optimism about AI's potential continues to build. Uh, And what's more, even if the benefits of AI is likely to take time to diffuse through economies, history suggests that investors will typically seek to crystallize these benefits up front. So you put all that together, optimism builds, investors attempt to crystallize those benefits ahead of them actually happening in the real economy. That's another reason to think that next year, will be a good year for stock markets, particularly in the US. And we anticipate another year of double-digit returns for the S&P 500.
0: Let's step back a bit from that macro story and talk about elections, because I think that's shaping up to be one of the big themes of of 2024, isn't it? It's being billed as the biggest ever year for elections. You've got Indonesia, India, Mexico, the US, potentially the UK, people going to the polls in, in those countries. That's just to name a few. Gerd Wilder's Freedom Party stormed the Dutch parliamentary election uh, in recent days. But we had this interesting note from Hubert de Barashe, who's our colleague on the markets team. And he's talking about the Dutch result. And he makes the point that certainly as far as Eurozone financial markets go, the, the economic story is a far more important determinant than, than who's in or out of government in, in Holland. Is that a rule for 2024's elections in general, do you think? I mean, how should we think about them?
1: I think there's certainly a tendency in markets to perhaps overweight the importance of elections in determining economic outcomes. There's certainly a tendency uh, amongst politicians to overweight their ability, to exaggerate their ability to influence economic outcomes. So every government in waiting, every political party on the campaign trail has a plan for growth. I think one of the lessons from the past... Sixty or seventy years of economic history is that no matter what that plan for for growth might be, often uh, it doesn't translate into actual growth in the real economy, and yeah? that that gets buffeted by all manner of forces. And and the best laid plans often uh, are laid to waste. So politicians tend to exaggerate their ability to influence economic outcomes. Markets tend to feed off of that a bit, I think, sometimes, and certainly the narrative in markets feeds off of off of that. The reality is sometimes a bit more mundane. I think one of the points that's worth stressing, though, is that there has been a shift in the kind of political consensus uh, with regards to particularly multilateralism so and global um, cooperation. So the, the sureties of the 1990s, where most governments were kind of broadly bought into kind of market friendly economics, they believed in the, the the benefits and advantages of integration on a global scale, and, and, and obviously, globalization, turbocharged growth, particularly in emerging markets. Those days, it goes without saying, are kind of consigned to history's dustbin. And we've got a far more fractured world as we've as we've discussed. Now, in that respect, there's several really important and interesting elections next year. That we've got Taiwan in uh, January. That could be a potential flashpoint for tensions uh, between the U.S. and China. Uh, India's election, I think, will be important too in terms of helping to shape where India sits in the U.S.-China fracturing debate but but of course the U.S election at the end of the year is is key as well the result of that election is not going to unwind or reverse U.S China fracturing but it will I think inform the direction that fracturing takes
0: yeah talk to us a bit about what the outcome of the u.S election would mean in terms of this idea of global
1: economic fracturing you know like I said I don't think it, it will necessarily reverse um U.S China fracturing I think that's but it will influence the form it could take. So under Biden, under the Biden administration, fracturing between US and China has broadened out to include areas such as technology transfers, financial flows, semiconductors, obviously, export bans being put in place on terms of key technology to China. A Trump victory in November could see a return to the, a narrower form of fracturing, focused principally on trade and tariffs so it will it will influence the form that that us china relationship takes but just as important i think there's a risk that the us adopts a more isolationist approach under trump that strains relations with europe we've talked before haven't we about how the the strength of the us aligned block lies both in its relative size but also it, it, its economic diversity it takes in all the major European economies, India, Mexico, Vietnam, Korea, Taiwan, Japan, as well as some commodity producers. So it's a large and diverse bloc. If the US takes a more isolationist approach under Trump, then there's a risk I think that starts to undermine the alliance with Europe. And it starts to chip away at the size and, and relative diversity of of that that underpins the the resilience of the US bloc. So a killing I think perhaps underappreciated risk is that the U.S. election could influence the extent to which the the U.S. bloc holds. So fracturing is here to stay, but I think a key point is that the outcome of elections next year are going to have a significant effect on how it actually develops in the years ahead.
0: That was Neil Shearing on the key themes that will shape macro and markets in 2024. Look out for our next round of quarterly outlooks the week of December 4th for our 2024 forecasts and register for our world in 2024 drop-ins. Those are our short form webinars on Tuesday, December 5th, where you can get answers to your questions about risks and opportunity in the year ahead. There's going to be a big reveal about where Eurozone inflation is going in 2024 and the ECB's response to that in the HICP release this coming Thursday, the 30th. The Eurozone team will be on hand with instant reactions and more in-depth analysis over that day. In the US, PCE inflation is going to be out on the Thursday as well, so watch out for our US team's response to that. If you're a CE Advanced subscriber, you get access to all this insight and more, as well as to our interactive inflation dashboards and their underlying data. So check out our premium platform to learn more. That's capitaleconomics.com forward slash ce advanced That's forward slash ce advanced In the coming week, we've also got a very interesting report coming out about how Japanese inflation could rise to 2% on a sustained basis in the coming years and what that could mean for the BOJ marcel telian our japan head will be on a drop-in at 8 a.m london 4 p.m singapore time on thursday to talk through that report and on friday morning london time it's the turn of our uk property team who'll be hopping online shortly after the latest nationwide price data to talk about the uk housing market in 2024 don't miss that session details of all our drop-ins can be found on our events page online Now, this coming Thursday marks the start of the next UN Climate Conference, or COP28. It's a key date in the annual climate calendar, but our climate economics team warns this isn't the committee to save the world. The team's just launched four tools that help clients with climate reporting and to help them evaluate how effectively countries are meeting climate targets. And David Oxley, our climate economics head, and climate economist Hamad Hussein sat down earlier in the week to discuss some of the key findings from working with these tools. It's a wide ranging chat that outlines how the green transition could succeed, and it starts with David explaining why these COP meetings won't be the reason for that success.
2: I mean, I I don't want to sound like a broken record here, or be too cynical, but. I think it's pretty clear that these annual COP events are, are not where the biggest action on the green transition and tackling climate change really take place. I think the sort of off-sighted accusation that these tend to be more sort of like political grandstanding events rather than sort of where nuts and bolts of um, mm-hmm. the green transition take place, I do agree with that. The, the loss and damage fund that was agreed at COP27 is a, a key case and point in this. There was a lot of fanfare around this measure at the time, which is essentially relates to finance being provided to the small countries that have contributed very little to the climate change problem, but are really facing the macroeconomic and physical social impacts of it right now. And it all sounded great in, in the Communicate COP27, but key details as to who was going to get the money, what the fund was precisely going to look like, when the money was going to be distributed, for example. They've all been left flailing. And as we've seen, this remains one of the key sort of points of um, uncertainty and discrepancy coming into this COP. And also, I mean, after the disaster of the the precursor to a COP earlier this year in Bonn, it was nothing short of a disaster, really. There was, as I say, lots of disagreement, particularly on the loss and damage and the details of it. And I think it, it just speeds volumes that. It was a 10-day event and the the agenda for it wasn't agreed until the evening of day nine. So I think that just goes to show how contentious these meetings can be. I think where this COP does stand out is that there has been some good mood music on the climate front in the recent weeks leading up to this event. I know this is something we've been discussing quite a lot, Hamad, particularly some of the about noise, well, positive noises that come out of the recent US-China talks. Could you talk us through some of the details of what we've found particularly encouraging? Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, COP is not the be all and end all. And I think the recent US and China talks are a good example of that, from which there are two key takeaways. First, being it's very encouraging to see both countries support efforts to treble global renewable capacity by 2030. Some of our listeners may recall that this pledge originally came out of the G20 summit in India. And now there seems to be momentum to turn this into a global pledge. So it's definitely very heartening and good to see both US and China throw their weight behind this proposal. I suppose the other words are easy, but I think
2: we, you, know, if you were telling me that this, if this, um, the, the ambition of this is broadly consistent with the net zero scenarios put out by the IAEA. So yeah, it remains to be seen what actually happens on, on the ground, but you can't really fault this plans for ambition, which is quite encouraging.
3: Exactly. It definitely remains to be seen whether action will follow rhetoric on that front. The second key point from the recent talks, which is just as important, if not more important, is that both countries agreed cooperation on reducing methane emissions. Now, methane, it doesn't get as much of the headlines as carbon dioxide. But interestingly, methane is in fact 28 times more potent than CO2. So any plans and promises to reduce methane emissions would certainly be welcome again, out of the US-China talks came the China methane reduction plan. Now, admittedly, this is a little bit vague. There were no numerical targets within the plan, but it's definitely a step in the right direction. After all, China is uh, the largest emitter of methane and was one of the countries that did not sign up to the global methane pledge, which promised to cut methane emissions by 30% by 2030. So that
2: is good news. Methane accounts
3: for around 25% of overall
2: global greenhouse gas emissions. And as you say, it's a lot more potent, but the fact it doesn't persist in the atmosphere as long means it's one of the, the lowest hanging fruit of things that you should be aiming for to really start to limit the increase in the global temperature. The one thing I was really encouraged by from looking at methane is that, yes, there's a problem and you know, the fact that China seems to be warming up to taking steps to reduce emissions of methane is positive. But what was quite encouraging is that a lot of these emissions of methane actually seem to be, it's not really that intractable. A lot of them, for example, come from leaky pipes and old coal mines not being shut up properly. Crucially, a lot of these steps could pay for themselves, particularly when gas prices were very, very unabated. kind have come down a bit since, but I think it's quite encouraging that there's yeah seems to be sort of the political will to tackle these. We're talking about US and China, and one key takeaway that I know we discussed a lot is that just China is a really interesting country when it comes to climate. We did an in-depth report on China earlier this year, looking at what I called the the Jackal and Hyde nature of um, China when it comes to climate. Well, I think we're we're all fully aware of. How China's development over the past twenty years or so has been powered by coal, just as just as Western economists developed, for, powered by. Um, but one thing that really stands out, I think, and perhaps it doesn't get as much attention as it possibly should do, is just how quickly the facts on the ground are changing on China. I know we've recently revamped our global climate data bank, and there were some very interesting points in China, in particular, you, you showing.
3: Yeah. You know, one thing to say about China—it's very dominant in the rollout of renewables. Despite accounting for just under a fifth of global GDP, China actually accounts for around one third of global renewable capacity. And that number doesn't even include the solar exports that China produces, which helps to increase solar capacity in other parts of the world. So, and of course, EV batteries as, as well, yeah. The renewables, of course, yeah, definitely. You know, the rollout of EVs has been well-documented and new EV sales in China accounted for roughly 30% of total car sales in
2: 2022. Yes, and China is one of the standout stories from our our new set of green transition scores, which are some metrics which try to compare how the green transition has going to play out between now and 2015 <laughs> across countries.
3: Yeah, I mean, yeah, China's scores definitely stood out to me as well. Um, At the moment, they're lagging well behind Europe and the US for obvious reasons, you know, use of coal. But the green transition scores, in fact, show them closing the gap. And in fact, by 2050, their scores are broadly similar with the US. A key reason for this is that we think China will phase out coal fairly successfully. And we think that there will be a story of deindustrialization happening in China over the coming decades.
2: Exactly. And I think that whole expected decline in coal use, we I think one of the stand up stories from our when we launched our climate emissions forecast earlier this year was how we expect India to overtake China as the world's biggest emitter in the twenty forties with emissions in India to continue to climb, but yeah, coming down quite aggressively in China towards the the uh, Towards the end of um, our long-term forecasting horizon. So, I mean, so looking beyond China and COP, um, if we're sitting here at the end of 2023, um, next year is notable in that a, a large proportion of the world's people are going to go to the polls, particularly in India, in the US, Mexico, lo- lots of uh, elections everywhere. I think Fed said climate is shaping up to be a key issue in many of these, uh, many places. I mean. Over the past year, we've seen climate become a real political football in the UK, for example. Yeah, over the summer, there was um, a bit of pushback in particular against the, the expansion of the, the ultra-low emission zone in London. Really, really kind of cemented climate as a political phenomenon in the UK. We've seen lots of um, stuff going on in Germany, particularly and the Greens having to back down on plans to effectively ban the use of gas boilers next year and yeah lots of obviously all the, the current developments taking place in the constitutional court when it comes to climate funding but again another i mean it would, be, it would be tempting to think that the climate issue is going to break predictably between the sort of expected lines you know we we see climate rhetoric in the us between the republicans and democrats being incredibly stark and yeah yeah but I, I think. From from looking at some of the data um, that we've pulled together in recent months, I'd, I I think one of the key takeaways, if you know, I'm sure you'd agree, Hamid, but is that it's not quite as clear cut as that.
3: No, definitely. One thing that I noticed is that Texas, in the past decade, which is a typically a very Republican state, has in fact added more than twice as much renewable capacity as very democratic california which is you know also seen to be very much a, a leader in climate action in the u.s i think a large part of this is due to the economic incentives of renewables they've become much more cost competitive and some of the large subsidies from the inflation reduction act has surely also played a part in this I um, think that's, that's a very good point i mean i think that that is a Exactly.
2: I mean, even even during the Trump presidency, we've had a lot of anti-climate rhetoric playing to his crowd. we not. Well, we we saw um, the, the shift away from coal power to gas power, which has been a key story in decarbonisation, not like the transition um, of decarbonisation in the US. Pretty much continues. So. I, as I said, I think um, that is that is a, a key point. Yeah, don't look at the climate rhetoric. Look at what the economic incentives are saying. Uh, that will ultimately affect
0: um, business behaviour. That was David Oxley and Hamad Hussein on the key to a successful green transition. Our climate reporting tools, the green transition scores, the data banks, and the emissions scenario generator are available to advanced subscribers, so get in touch to learn more about access. As I said, watch out for that Japan inflation report and our UK housing drop in this coming week our websites, where you'll find details about those and all our analysis of inflation, monetary policy, property markets, and much more besides. That's capitaleconomics.com. But until next time, goodbye. Whilst this podcast is provided with all reasonable skill and care, it comprises the subjective views of our economists. Furthermore, these views are not opinions, nor do they constitute investment or financial advice, or are they guarantees or reassurances to the expected results of any investment products or outcome. You should seek your own specific advice in relation to questions you may have. We will have no liability to you in relation to this podcast whatsoever.